Grace, mercy, and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A great cloud of witnesses. That's how our reading from the letter to the Hebrews today calls the people of God. A great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And I was talking to a friend this week who said that when he was going to church, they told him that this cloud of witnesses was the church and that the point was that people were watching him, holding him accountable, making sure that, you know, he did what he was supposed to do as a follower of Jesus and that following the example and the admonition of all these saints, this cloud of witnesses, he would finally be able to reach the place where Jesus was. I think this is exactly upside down. It's amazing how easily our Christianity is turned into another kind of racket, another kind of game of moralism that pits each of us against one another in a competition of spiritual athleticism. But the church, and we know this, and the saints, and we know this, are a collection of struggling, broken, hurting people who long to receive the mercy and grace of God. And the Bible actually supports this interpretation. You see, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11 and chapter 12 gives us this long list of biblical heroes who supposedly all had this great faith. But when you look at the footnotes in your study Bible and you trace down each of these names, you come upon a very mixed legacy. Last Sunday, Jason, when he was preaching up here, was telling us about how Abraham's faith, while great and important, was also kind of needy. Like, he needed a lot of confirmation and signs from God, and God, in God's wisdom and grace, put up with him. Similar to, say, Gibeon, who's named here, who needed not one but three signs before he would do what God set him out to do. Or it mentions the exodus, the liberation of God's people from slavery. But who was their leader? Moses. Moses, a guy who was literally kicked out of his town, ran away because he was a murderer then married a woman from a completely different religion and tribe. And then when God called him, he said, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not a good speaker. And what does God do? Does God move on to the next person who might be more, you know, up to snuff? No. God says, all right, man, you've got a brother who's pretty good at speaking. He did speech and debate in high school. He's going to do it for you, all right? Now stop with the excuses and go set my people free. 
And you could go through this long list of noble and ignoble servants of God, and you would get the same conclusion over and over. Sometimes there's even a degree of honesty about this writer who I think is trying really hard to like display heroes of faith, but even this writer can't ignore the fact that Rahab, an ancestor of Jesus, mind you, and not a Jewish person, was a prostitute. And while we need to absolutely respect and support and love sex workers of all kinds, back then that was not exactly a badge of honor or anything to be respected. Actually, you get the same effect when you read the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that both start with genealogies of Jesus. And you get a list of names of people that are less than stellar examples in morality. So this concept of saints being our examples, being a cloud of witnesses, is not simply for us to look at their lives and say, yeah, you know, they were really good people. Let me try to be a really good person too. But rather, it was precisely because their lives were messy and complicated and confusing, and they kept falling on their face and dusting themselves off again, that their lives are actually relevant to us. I mean, imagine if, if all you got was these super perfect people, which is sometimes the way that people talk about saints. You know, sometimes in Christianity we have these images of saints or these, these, these stories of the lives of the saints that are very, um, what's the word, antiseptic, you know? There's like no flavor to them, no interest. Good person, heard God's word, did what God said, died. Yay! Uh, what are you supposed to do with that? That's nothing like me. I mean, it's like when um, your parents, maybe, maybe this happened to you, uh, it happens to many, told you, why can't you be more like your sister or your brother or your cousin or so-and-so's kid next door? What did that do for you? Did that make you more obedient to your parents and more kind-hearted and generous? Uh, no. It made you resentful and maybe grudgingly you did what your parents asked you to do, but there was no change of heart whatsoever. Because just putting up an example for us to follow doesn't do anything for us. But a witness, ah, that's a different thing. When I think of witnesses, I actually this weekend think of Woodstock. Yeah, so this weekend is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, which was, you know, a giant music festival that happened in 1969. Like 500,000 people. Of course, it was only supposed to be 50,000 people, but uh, it was almost 500,000 people. And at some point, they just decided to let people in for free because, like, they couldn't stop this wave of people descending on a tiny farm in upstate New York. All these hippies coming to see, you know, Carla Santana and Creedence Clearwater Revival and, uh, uh, and the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, like an incredible lineup, right? Why am I so passionate about this? Because my dad went to Woodstock. No, really, if you ever meet my dad, you should have him tell you some stories. It's pretty cool uh, and wild. Um, 
But you know, there are now hundreds of thousands of people that are witnesses to the event today that can tell you the story of what it was like to see all these incredible musicians from the late 60s in one of the largest concerts ever, certainly at the time. And there's some video footage and some audio, but it's grainy and not very satisfying. So all we have is witnesses, people who tell the story, sometimes through rose-colored glasses, <laughs> probably. But, you know, having, being a person who grew up on those stories, it did shape me a great deal. I still listen to that music. I think, I don't know if this is a helpful analogy to you or not, but I think it's a little bit like that with the cloud of witnesses described here in Hebrews. These people weren't the stars of what they're witnessing to, right? Like my dad, who was a musician and would have loved to have been on that stage, but he wasn't. He, in fact, my dad's band was also touring in upstate New York, and because the weather was so crappy, they got rained out, and they were like, well, have you heard about this Woodstock thing? Let's go there. And so, and so they did. Um, but my dad wasn't on that stage. He's no star. He quit music when I was born. He was like, I got to get a real job. But he was a witness to the event and continues to be with great passion. Playing in Vermont today, actually. He's retired, so now he plays music again. Um, and I think it's like that with faith, too. We who are witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and to God's goodness and mercy and kindness and to what God is doing in the world, we're not excellent witnesses because we're so awesome, because then, let's face it, we would just be witnesses to ourselves. No, it's precisely because we are so flawed and struggling that we can point away from ourselves and to Jesus and point others in that direction too. There's a story from Woodstock that John Fogarty tells, you know, the lead singer from Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's actually really funny because they were supposed to be on at 9 p.m. on Saturday, like in the heart of the festival. They were a big deal. But Grateful Dead were on before them. <laughs> if you know anything about the Grateful Dead, they do not follow a time plan. And those guys just played and played and played. One of the worst sets, apparently, of Grateful Dead history. It dragged on. It wasn't until 2 in the morning that Creedence Clearwater Revival was on I mean, can you imagine? And John Fogarty, the lead singer, tells a story of how, like, he was looking over at the audience, you know, saw hundreds of thousands of people who were just, like, sleeping there in the field, just, like, bodies upon bodies, people just passed out. He's like, hello? And he couldn't see anything. It was just, like, the worst. You know, he, was, he thought he was going to go out to this amazing atmosphere, and it was just dead silence. And so they're tuning their guitars, they're getting ready for what's going to be just this awful set. And then he said, there was this one guy like literally half a mile away with a lighter who shouted, we see you, John, do your thing, rock on. And he said, he said, that whole set, I was playing for that guy. <laughs> I think this is 
a little bit like what it means to look at Jesus. Because you could get distracted by all the stuff that weighs you down and the sin that clings so closely. But when we look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the weakness of ours doesn't even matter. We play for him all the way to the end. Amen.